Hi, this is Toby. Just a quick note to mention two things. One, this is the 50th episode of our podcast. Hooray! Thank you for being a listener and thank you also for spreading the word about the podcast. As I know you do, because more and more people I meet these days who work in science advice know about the podcast and listen to it. And I'm pretty sure they haven't all heard about it from me. I didn't really know when I dipped my toe in the water of this podcasting lark that it would embed itself in the community in quite the way that it seems to have done. So I'm happy about that. Uh, it seems we've stumbled into a niche and we're very much now squatting in that niche until someone official comes along to kick us out. So yeah, thanks again and see you at 100. That was the first thing. The second is rather more mundane. I recorded this interview in the middle of the dramatic heatwave of June 2022 in Western Europe, and one of our guests was in Spain, which recorded, I believe, its hottest ever temperature for the month of June. And I mentioned this because she quite understandably had some doors and windows open while she was making the recording. Um, and that means that although her audio is crystal clear, there's a bit more background noise than you normally hear on the podcast. Most of it, I have to say, is beautiful birdsong. So I have not tried too hard to remove it from the stream. Okay, on with our 50th episode. See you on the other side. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professors Peter Jackson and Marta Rivera Ferre. Professor Jackson is the co-director of the Institute for Sustainable Food at the University of Sheffield in the UK. As a geographer, his research focuses on consumer culture, with a particular focus on food, and that's an area which has seen him advise policymakers at national and international level, including the European Commission's Scientific Advice Mechanism. I'm sure I've heard of that one somewhere before. And Professor Rivera studies food systems and their interaction with the environment and society, especially notions of food sovereignty and feminism. She's research professor at the Spanish National Research Council in Ingenio, which is a joint research centre with the Polytechnic University of Valencia. And she's also contributed to science advice processes in Catalonia and Spain, as well as internationally for the UN, IPCC and um, IPBES, or IPBES, or however they're pronouncing it this week. So welcome, Marta and Peter, to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to say that it's time to revisit one of my favourite topics to talk about, uh, which is food. Both of you are very eminent experts, obviously, on food systems and how they work and how they should work. And actually, in this podcast, you are following in the footsteps of some equally eminent experts on similar topics. Most recently, Jennifer Clapp from the UN Committee on World Food Security back in October. So today, I want to use this topic as a springboard to talk more generally about the role of the social sciences, or one role of social sciences, in helping to elucidate different ways of framing the same issue for policymakers. But before we get there, I also want to take this chance to do something that I rarely do on this podcast. In fact, something I think I've never done in 50 episodes, which is to talk in a bit of detail about SAPEA itself, the organisation that produces this podcast that I work for, and the scientific advice mechanism that SAPEA is part of, for which you both wrote an important report on food systems back in 2019 and 2020. So tell us a bit, please, about that report. So, yeah, thanks, Toby. So SAPEA stands for Science Advice for Policy by European Academies and is 
designed to get expert, independent academic advice on topics of policy relevance. So in this case, we were writing a report called Towards an EU Sustainable Food System, and we went through the process that SAPEA usually uses, which is to convene a working group, which I chaired, of uh, I think it was 15 different experts from around uh, the European Union. We then conducted some systematic reviews of the literature, had some face-to-face meetings, and then drafted the evidence review report that I referred to just now towards an EU sustainable food system. That report then goes to the group of chief scientific advisors who produce a scientific opinion, and that in the end influenced the Commission's policy, uh, in this case, uh, the farm to fork strategy, part of the European uh, Green Deal. So I think the important part uh, for this audience is that the academic working group is independent. It's not campaigning. It's designed to be an expert academic view. It then goes through a process which is, if you like, increasingly politicised as it gets towards policy. Uh, I think that's probably enough of an introduction for now. Yeah, thanks, Peter. That was instructive in how clearly you expressed the the organisation. So thanks very much. Um, What was it like working on this report? For me, it was great. And actually, I'm very happy I had the chance to participate in this report. I've been part of uh, several science policy processes, particularly more on climate change and food. Um, Primarily working with interdisciplinary um, teams of, of, of experts, no? And in this case, for me, it was very important to have this social science focus because normally social science is like the one which is uh, complementing natural science or stepping behind many times in this type of reports. And it's the one that at the end, social science tells us how things work, no? What is, you know, how society works. And I find this is very, very relevant in science policy uh, processes. And to me, it was lacking. And I found it very nice to participate in the report, apart from, of course, sharing with other experts. It was interdisciplinary excelling itself because social science is not only about sociology. So we have sociologists, economists, geographers, no? different types of disciplines which are also part of social science. And uh, for me, it was very, very, very good opportunity. The other thing that's worth saying is that this was conducted just before the outbreak of COVID. So our meetings, several of our meetings were face-to-face. And I think that definitely enabled us to you know, gain trust among each other, uh, to collaborate in an effective way, which would, I think, have been much harder. Uh, the report came out just as the COVID lockdown restrictions started to come into force. Yeah, one of my favourite parts of this job is the occasions when I get to sit in the background at one of these working group meetings and just listen to the scientists discussing and debating their perspectives on the evidence and what it means and what should go in the reports. They've always been such lively and uh, very like earnest meetings. And I'm sure you're right, it's not the same when you do it over Zoom. And one interesting thing, and no, because as I have participated, as I say, in other processes, and something I found very interesting in this one is that we had an exchange with the reviewers, no? In person, these processes are normally very robust and very, very no science-based and you have external review and you have to respond to the comments of reviewers and so on. But here we had also the opportunity to exchange with a group of experts which were external to the systematic review we did and the, and the assessment we did. So they, they, we got their feedbacks and I thought that was also very rich because having in-person meetings as well 
with these uh, external reviewers and, and, and colleagues who are also experts but did not participate in the assessment, I thought it was very, very good also as part of the process. Yeah, we had a meeting with stakeholders as well. Uh, several several yes. hours discussion with different uh, policymakers and uh, businesses and so on. And that was, again, a very, um, quite a grueling process, I think. It was just <laughs> extended and lots of different points of view in the room, but I think made it a more robust report in the end. Okay, that's interesting to get that feedback. Thanks. Now, rather than going into lots of detail about your specific report and what you concluded about food systems, which listeners can look up online if they want to, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, instead, I'd like to zoom in on one aspect of your conclusions, which I found very interesting and hopefully of more general application. And that's this concept of having different framings for a problem. And, and I think you use the term framing in quite a technical sense. So maybe I'll first ask you, in the sense in which you use it, what is a framing? So framing, basically, what we show is what are the underlying values on how we shape a problem and how we address the solutions for that problem. And the point is that, particularly in all the challenges that we as humanities are facing, there are different framings. No? And this happened with, with food. Food is a key issue <laughs> in our societies, in, in the world, facing you know, most of the challenges in terms of climate change, food security, uh, water contamination, water use, land use. All of these are linked to food systems. And the point is that all these challenges can be framed in different way, depending on your values, right? What we show in the report is like, for instance, no, we take the example of food security. Why do we have still so many people which are still suffering from hunger? And then you can say from that, because we don't produce enough food. Or you can say, and this is the way you shape the problem. Or you can say, because we don't uh, distribute properly food, not the food that is uh, actually produced. Or you take a system approach and you say, uh, more broadly, you know, the issue of food waste or the issue of power, you know, the power distribution. So there are different uh, ways to shape the problem, but the way you shape the problem is related to the values you have, right? And this is uh, valid for science and it's valid for policymaking. And particularly in the context where we are in the interface between science and policy, then it plays a major role. Because then you need to understand how a particular uh, scientific uh, project or, or research has been performed, how it has shaped the problem, and then you understand why it makes, it makes coherence with the solutions that some people provide, and other scientists may shape the problem from, or from a different perspective. And it's very relevant for policymakers to understand then why different scientists propose different solutions to the same problem. And the different solutions that sometimes are contradictory can be because different scientists shape the problem in a different way. And this is why framings are important because then policymakers can have on the table different proposals coming from science and coming from evidence, all of them valid, but they may be contradictory. And this is very clear in food. And then we need to understand why are they contradictory. And this is where framing is relevant. And then framing in policymaking, we have the same, no? So Policymakers maybe are more comfortable with a technocratic way of making, no? And others are more comfortable with uh, grassroots, no? Grassroots innovations, trying to promote grassroots innovations to address given problems. And this is again uh, depending on, on the framing you have. And what we found 
what we found is that in the particular case of food, we identified a few framings, no? and the more relevant were food as a commodity, food as a human right, food as a common good, no? were like the few ones that were already taken on, on board by the, by the scientific uh, uh, advice. No? Mm, great. I mean, you're right. And having said we shouldn't talk in too much detail about the specifics of food science, it would be great to have a couple of concrete examples of these framings and maybe how different framings can lead to different policy outcomes. So thinking of food as a commodity suggests it's just like anything else. It can be bought and sold. Uh, it can be traded. It leads to a, a kind of market-based set of solutions to what we might do. It might lead to regulation. It might lead to changes in governments, governance. It might lead to changes in uh, the structure of how food, is, how food is bought and sold. Whereas once you start to think about food as a human right, uh, there's much less emphasis on, on the market, um, on buying and selling food, and much more emphasis on access to food, on food justice, on food so sovereignty, and other uh, ideas about how to shape policy which are not simply market-based. Yeah, and just to add to this, no, just to give examples of particular policies, no, if if food is considered as a commodity, particularly in a context where we are, no, you want to support at some point, no, like free trade, and in that case, you put a lot of uh, emphasis on the role of consumers in food as a commodity, and then you you may support something like uh, issues like sustainable intensification, no, like this framing of sustainable intensification in farm, and still is more very much linked to productivity. Right in the farm, not to produce more food, you no, know, that you put into the market, and then you play mostly with economies of scale, right? And then it's all these kind of policies linked to this narrative. And then, if you are working more with the framing of food as a human right, then you are kind of more worried in terms of no exploitation, no. There are particular policies like for access to land for farmers, no, since you, you want to, to offer no, the opportunity for, for, for this land concentration, and then you are uh, very much focused on access to land. So you see there are different policies. In the way of food is a common good, you are very much focused on the governance of food, right? Um, there's a lot of emphasis given to the to the governance of food and food systems, on, on the food councils, no, and all these kind of things, how you really give relevance of important or, or, or frame different um, entry points to, to address the same objective, which is the sustainability for food systems, right? Because all of these framings want to work to achieve sustainable food systems. I think Martha puts that really well. I think uh, often we think of policy in general as a kind of technocratic exercise. People often talk about kind of what works as though there's a switch you can turn and then lots of good consequences or bad consequences follow from that. Whereas I think what we were trying to argue is that this idea of framings suggests that there are narratives. That was the word that Marta used. You know, stories, how you story food, how, the system, how you imagine the system to work leads to quite different conclusions. Uh, even, even thinking of food as, a, as part of a food system is itself a narrative or a construct um, or a framing in, in our terms. So I think we, that, that's what we're trying to do in the report is to show how those different framings, right from the beginning of the thinking about policy interventions, how that has particular consequences uh, for the policies uh, and the outcome of those policies further down the line. 
One very important issue here, Toby, is that the fact that different framing exists, both in science and policy making, should not lead us to what they call uh, policy paralysis, right? On the contrary, it has to show us that, of course, there are many different solutions and potential solutions. So what we need at the end of the day is to uh, make the policy making process more democratic. No? So at some point to bring in different actors, no? and this is why we also identify in the report all the many different actors engaged in food systems and, and the promotion of food system sustainability. And there are different methodologies, no? like participatory scenario and different, different methodologies to, to bring all these uh, actors together and develop actions to address particular problems. No? but also led us to the conclusion that there are no one-size-fits-all solutions, right? So there is no one solution for food security to address hunger. There is no one solution to address the pandemics of obesity worldwide, or there's no one solution to address the issue of climate change, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and, and all this. No? So just because we, don't, we do have different framings and different narratives, and different actors have different narratives, even within one community, like science or policymakers, or farmers, no? To find farmers, they are all these narratives that we are talking about in terms of food as a community, food as a human right, or food as a common good. To find farmers which are much more linked to one or other. So it's not to say that all farmers think the same, right? So you can see this is an issue we're really excited about. It's something that really, really, really fires a social science. I would say one of the jobs of social science is to make clear the values that underpin different policy options and different ways of thinking about food. So often I think the, the framing is implicit. It's just taken for granted. And one of the jobs of social science is to say, well, you know, it shouldn't be taken for granted. We can kind of map. If you think about food like this, it will have those consequences. So bringing things into view that are sometimes implicit or taken for granted is something that we really, I think, uh, can focus on. Yeah, and actually, just to add to what uh, Peter is saying, no, normally the one that is taken for, for granted is, is more linked to the more powerful actors, no. And what we want to do in, in social science is to show that other, other actors, no, uh, normally more vulnerable groups or whatever that they may have different framings, no. And I think this is very relevant. I think this is very relevant, and this is how this is how I see the role of social scientists. Uh, is and in a process like this, it's not to say we should go to this or this framing, is to show there are different framings, bear in mind, and the different framings mean different policies, and the different policies have different consequences. And then, in our report, because we have a food systems perspective, is to show when you take this uh, policy, uh, then they may have consequences in different parts of the food system. And also to show all this complexity of also decision-making and the impact of our decisions to different components of the food system. I agree. It's fascinating. And it's interesting to hear you describe this particular role of science. And on that, I have a couple of questions. So firstly, in, in describing these framings as being based on narratives, right, being based on different subjective views of the problem that different people might have, uh, according to their values and their general worldviews, I suppose, and based on those narratives, you can then construct different ways of understanding the problem, which in turn imply different solutions. So then one question is, like, is this, this process, the process of choosing a framing, really entirely values-based? And if it is, what's the role of scientific evidence in that? 
because if it's all based on subjective values and worldviews, it seems like the best a scientist could do would be to point out the different framings. Is that the limit? Or is it also possible for scientists to, to draw on evidence or their expertise to say, well, this framing doesn't quite add up because of evidence X and Y, but that framing makes a lot more sense and we should really adopt it. I guess I'm asking, can there be an empirically right or wrong framing or a more or less valid framing? Or is it all purely subjective? I think that's a really key point, Toby, because it often leads to a misunderstanding of social science that it's entirely subjective, uh, just a sort of um, cacophony of different voices. And that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that different narratives or different the values that underpin those different narratives all have their own logic. You can understand why people frame things the way they do, and you can track through the consequences of this or that kind of framing. So I think the social science has some objectivity, if you like. It's not just anything goes, your values versus my values. There is a process that we can follow in terms of, which we describe in terms of framing, uh, that then says uh, it will have these kinds of consequences. So the contribution we can make to policy is, you know, what are you trying to do? You want a more sustainable system, but you also want one which uh, uh, is um, uh, more equitable or you want transition which is timely. And if you can establish the sort of ground rules, then I think you can be, social science has more to offer in terms of how we might move in this direction or that direction. So it's not just that there are lots of different narratives or different values. There's a sort of um, fitness for purpose. You know, if you want this kind of outcome, this is how you go about it. But bear in mind, there might be these kinds of adverse consequences or perverse effects. That seems to me a contribution of social science that's really valuable and valid uh, beyond a sort of um, pluralistic uh, anything goes kind of view of social science. I, th I think that's a common misunderstanding of, of what our contribution to policy can be. Just, just to add, no, for me, Toby, there is nothing more objective than make visible the subjectivity. Of course, and, and it's very important to show this, no? because uh, when one is doing research on increasing no? productivity, let's say, no? I am a natural scientist and I am doing research on, on increasing more, no? producing more and more food. And then I'm in my lab and I think I am neutral and, I, and, it's, and it's fine. Maybe you, you, your research, is, is what you're doing is very valid, but it's responding to one framing about food and the role of food in our societies. And this is something we need to be aware of. It's very objective to bring all the different uh, subjectivities and values behind. And, and, uh, and as the example I just gave you with this uh, assembly for me, social scientists, by providing different methodologies, not normally these are more participatory methodologies, where we can put together different actors, it gives you uh, a pathway tools to advance yeah okay so i like the way you frame it but no, the way you frame it the, the, the like the, i like the way you expressed it marta um that scientists can be objective in the way they describe the subjectivities that they find sure so it's a mistake to think that scientists when they talk about framings are just uh giving their own subjective angles on things um but nonetheless from what you said even if you're studying objectively the thing you are studying is subjectivity. And so that subjectivity is still kind of baked in in that way. And also to an extent, I think, as you also mentioned, like it's baked into how you study it. That's inescapable as well. In that as scientists, we're also 
subjects with our own uh, perspectives. But my question was more, how much help can we then be to policymakers? Is the role of the science advisor simply to expose and characterize these different framings and say, okay, if your perspective is, I don't know, food as a commodity, then you ought to do A, B, and C. But if your perspective is food is a human right, then you ought to forget A, B, and C and instead do, do these other things. Is that the extent of your role? And then you lead the choice of framings to the policymaker. Or, or, or can you as a scientist help a bit more and add, and according to our evidence, we really think you should be framing food as a human right and not as a commodity or whatever. That's my question. For me, it is not my role to say scientists what they have to do. But I do this in the research I do. When you presented me, you have said I work normally on the interactions between food and the environment. And normally I work with alternative food systems, uh, with a uh, focus on food sovereignty and feminism. This shows what I think the pathway towards get more sustainable food systems. And my work is now to provide evidence because my, my, my experience showed me that this is a very good pathway. So if during my, what I do in my work is to bring evidences to see if this is true or not. No? Because, of course, as a scientist, I need to be open and say, I was wrong. This is not working. Or this doesn't work here. But as a scientist, I don't see I have to tell policymakers what they have to do because they have their own framing. I don't have to convince them. My role is just to bring evidence. I think this is the way I see it. Eh? Then, as a scientist, then, as a scientist participating in science policy processes, then as a scientist, I choose my subjects and then I am making a decision there, which is based on my framings. Um, and I, this is the way I see it. Yeah, I, I, I'd answer in a similar way. And if you look at the SAPEA process, it's sort of baked into that. So the working groups, like the one that Marta and I were involved in, review independently peer-reviewed evidence. So we sift evidence, and uh, including uh, evaluations of previous policies, uh, for example. That was one of the chapters in our report. Then our independent advice goes forward to the group of chief scientific advisors who make policy recommendations. We're specifically not required to do that in the evidence review. So the evidence review is independent and doesn't lead to specific recommendations. GCSE then takes that and says, these are the sort of recommendations we think the Commission should take into account. And then the Commission, you know, the democratic uh, part of the process, uh, formulates policy. But I think the loop continues then. I think what Marta was saying, and I agree with, is that then whatever comes out of that process, the farm-to-fork strategy in this case, can be subject to critique. You know, we can say there are inconsistencies in this, or there are contradictions. There are things that, you know, were there in the report which aren't followed through in the policy. And a really good example of that that we wrote about in the Nature Food paper uh, was about the way in which there's a sort of suggestion that, yes, uh, we should move towards food as more of a common good. We should think about citizens rather than thinking about consumers. Uh, but I think the, the, the commissions slips back into a language where the public is reduced to their role as you know, consumers in the marketplace, making choices. And then the policy environment should give them the information on which to make informed choices. But that is such a limited way of thinking of the role of, of publics in the food system. We're not simply there when we're buying something or making a choice between two commodities. 
we're there in terms of our whole wider social, political, ethical commitments. And that slippage between consumer and citizen is a really pernicious one, not just in relation to food, but in relation to health or housing or whatever. And it, it enables governments to kind of get off the hook that says it's all the consumer's fault. You know, we gave you the information and you made unhealthy choices. The, the consequences in terms of obesity or whatever are then all down to consumers making bad choices. And that's such a limited way of framing the issue. There's a much wider food environment, a retail environment, corporations involved in agricultural production, the whole legislative infrastructure and so on that shapes individual consumers. So we really would urge policymakers to look carefully when they use the word consumer and to think how it's different from thinking of the public in a different role such as that of citizen. Those are really, I think, good examples of framings that have real consequences in policy outcomes. So what's your diagnosis there? So in this particular case, you you carefully tried to expose these framings in the evidence you submitted and to indicate the different implications. And it sounds like that didn't quite land, like the policymakers still kind of went on with their existing perspective. So why didn't this element of your advice, uh, why wasn't it more successful? Or, or perhaps it did land, perhaps they got it, and then they simply just chose a framing that you <laughs> were hoping they wouldn't choose. The way, when you, because I want to link it to the previous question you did, now, what's your role? And for me, be, being here is part of, uh, as a scientist in these processes, is also to educate policymakers, right? Normally they feel comfortable with clear answers. You have to do this. And um, this is not valid anymore in the complex uh, world where we live. There is, because we know, and this is not only for food, there, there is uh, the, the, the case for many of the big challenges we are facing uh, in the world today, that there are many potential answers, no? And for me, it's very relevant to educate policymakers because they are normally also working with short time framing, you know, because uh, uh, elections is for five years, whatever. And this is why they want numbers and they want very short and clear answers. And just to say, sorry, you have to engage in long term processes. You have to start now and you have to understand that to address this problem requires time and requires uh, uh, possibly agreements with your uh, with the other policymakers that maybe will be working in your place in the future. I, I understand it's difficult for them to engage because it's, it's against you know, what they expect. You know, they expect short, clear answers with a very short and intense temp short in terms also temporal scale. And what we provide is not that. You no, know? but for me it's very relevant to be part of the process of education of policymakers. No? And for me, this is part of a process of education of policymakers. So scientists now, we have learned to work together through inter- and transdisciplinary science. And now we, uh, we, we have also as scientists to educate policymakers that since science has changed and we live in a science uh, evidence-based society, policymaking has to change. No? And this is where so, but to me, it's also part of this process. I understand if they feel kind of, what can I do? No? How do I do that? Because scientists, we have passed from the for the same process. Yeah, I agree with that, Marta. I think um, uh, uh, we shouldn't be too negative. I think our report got some traction in, in policy. And, and I think things like, you know, taking a systems view of the food system is now widely accepted as, uh, as a way of understanding food. I think uh, sustainability is now an accepted goal 
for you know many areas of society, including agricultural production. Um, but I think our report, where we were disappointed, I think, is that the urgency question, you know, the need to move faster in, in some areas and possibly the balance between softer measures uh, about you know, consumer education and campaigns and so on versus harder measures around taxation or incentives and so on. I think our report produced good evidence on that and it, it's quite hard for governments to, to take that advice. You know, politics is the art of the possible, as they say, and, uh, you know, the Commission's not immune from that kind of view. There are lots of different interests represented. Uh, there are lots of different stakeholders involved in the system. So part of what we were saying was, you know, let's look more closely at the power asymmetries within, in this case, the food system. And that helps us to think about where responsibility for change lies. So I think, you know, the report did its job in terms of producing evidence that then went through the GCSA, which accepted lots of our arguments and evidence and made some recommendations. And if some of those are, uh, sort of say, watered down, if the consequences in terms of policy are not as strong as we might hope, I, I think that's you know part of the political process in which we're involved. Well, then uh, that sounds like a very wise reflection on which to leave things. So I really do want to thank both of you very much for your time and for your reflections on this issue. And although we're two years down the line now in terms of the report that you originally wrote, this question of framings and, and the role of social science in exposing them is clearly evergreen and is directly relevant to a whole load of areas of science advice. Um, so Marta Rivera-Ferre and Peter Jackson, thank you both very much. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Martha. Yeah, thank you both. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.